We started a tradition a few weeks ago that we would honor God's word by reading it. Every time I get up to preach, I, I, I see it as an opportunity not only for us to look at God's word together, but maybe to help us understand why we do what we do. You see, the public reading of God's word is something that is in dispute today. In fact, we used to have the Ten Commandments prominently placed in government institutions all over Washington, D.C., and in state capitals. And as you know, if you're a Christ follower, God's word hasn't held its same place, even though we believe God's word is life-changing. The culture we deal with today is largely unaware of its importance. And so, even though it's kind of a symbolic thing, I think it's an important thing that when we read God's word, we stand not in just in honor of the word, but in honor of the writer of the word, which is God. God, this is God's word, not our words. Now to help us to find today, especially for those who are visiting with us for the first time, turn to page 833. If you, have a, if you don't have a Bible, uh, here's my commitment to you. This is, the, this is the place that you can come and take the Bible, and it is not stealing. <laughs> so take it with you, Put your name on it, but then just bring it back. Because if I see a bunch of these on your counter at home, <laughs> then we'll have another discussion. All right? Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? We're in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to get to the section on the supremacy of Christ. And thus, our message this morning is in Christ alone. And here's how it starts in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, all things, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, in everything, in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You may be seated. I have a simple question today. What does the NFL and Jesus Christ have in common. Amen. Sunday. What else? What do Jesus Christ and the NFL have in common? The address? Bad refs. Actually, she's reading my mind. Actually, there is nothing that the two of those have in common. But the, I'm sorry to break it to you. I'm sorry. 
Apparently, Jesus was not a Packer fan on Monday night. You see, the debacle of the NFL was with this conclusion. They believed that they could have replacement refs and they would suffice. But they couldn't. And after Monday night, which will go down in infamy on Thursday, amazingly, a deal was struck for eight years and the regular officials were welcomed back. Now, a side note is I've been an I have been a high school football official in Orange County for five years. And it is an amazing thing between high school officiating and preaching. When they don't like your call on Friday night, they give you immediate feedback. When you don't like my preaching, you're a little more subtle. It comes via texts, emails, and anonymous letters. I have not received any of those, especially anonymous letters so far. But you see, the bottom line is those NFL officials really, in the end game, were irreplaceable. And in the end game, there is no, zero, nada replacement for Jesus Christ. And if you were reading with me in that passage, you realize that in Christ alone is everything that we live for and believe in. Now those of you who are clock watchers or iPhone watchers and you've set your phone to buzz when we're supposed to be out of here, <laughs> this will be a trying time for all of us in that I begin my sermon now at 1047. But in Christ alone, all things are possible. And so if you'll look if you'll look in your text with me and take your outline out, I'd like you to take some notes. And in it, we see this proposition. Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. He deserves to be first place in our lives. Why? Because in the text, we see that Jesus is sufficient in the following things. Roman numeral one. Jesus Christ is sufficient in his credentials and his character. Look at verse 15. We'll see a portrait, and then we'll see a position. First, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, some people may have felt that this is an early Christian hymn that came out of this. And the two words for image or likeness, one is this accidental likeness, like a, um, uh, uh, and the other word here is the word that we get exact reproduction. In fact, we get the word icon, E-I-K-O-N. Maybe that's where Nikon got their digital photo idea. Jesus is a clear picture of the Father. And it implies that he's the prototype. He's the example. He's, he's the head of the coin. Jesus Christ makes God visible to the world. That's why because when you live for Jesus, other people see that and go, whoa, there's something different about these Christians who go to ABF. There's got to be something different about your lives qualitatively. Now, what is his position? He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, time out. Some of you are going, mm, danger, Will Robinson, danger. You have to be over 50 to know what that is a quote from. Talk to me afterwards. You see, the Jehovah's Witnesses would take this to mean that Christ is part of creation. They'll use this verse. He is not part of creation. Let me explain it. He is over all creation. 
It refers to his rank. He is preeminent. Psalms 89, 27. Write that down in your notes. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. He's the firstborn in that he is the heir. He's the owner. He's the possessor of creation. Now, that also means that he's specially honored. He's the first and only son over all creation. It's like a superlative. He's the bigger, the biggest, the best. Jesus is number one. Now, this is all interesting for us if we have multiple kids in our family. If you're the firstborn, do not think that, oh, I am the firstborn of my family, and therefore, this is what I get. Well, actually, in, in, in the Old Testament, there were some benefits being the firstborn, but Jesus isn't being referred to as firstborn in terms of a family. He is the honored one. What Paul's trying to say is that Christ is, if he was just part of creation, he wouldn't have said that Christ created all things. Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but he is our maker, and you were created by Christ, by God, for a purpose. 1 John 1, 3, without him was not anything made that was made. If you ever wondered, well, how does God and the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit work? This is one more example of the Trinity. God, through Jesus Christ, created the heavens. We'll see that next. He is the priority. He's the sovereign. He is the boss. In fact, in, in today's culture, Jesus Christ is the CEO of your life. He's the chief executive officer. He's the equivalent of the NFL football coach. He is the one who calls the shots. Now, some would say, no, maybe the better analogy is he's the owner of the team because we know that Jerry Jones runs the Cowboys, all right? Number two, he's all-sufficient in creation. Look at verses 16 and 17. First, he's the creator of the universe, and then he's the cohesion of the universe. He's the creator of the universe in verse 16. And I gave you three words. Look at this. In the New American Standard, it translates the first one, by him, all things were created, through him, and for him. Let's come back to that. By him, all things were created. Now, notice there's a couple comparisons on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, that's the spiritual realm. And then he's also, he says, uh, over thrones and dominions, rulers, authorities, that's the physical realm. So whether it's spiritual, physical, Jesus Christ, the world was created by him. Now through him, he's the agent, he's the means, he made the world. Someone said it this way, the Father wills it, the Son plans it, and the Holy Spirit executed it. And then it says, for him. He is the goal. He is the reason. He is the purpose of creation. It's all for him. Creation is for him. He created it for us to enjoy, but ultimately to bring him glory. Think about our lives. Most of what we do is for our pleasure, his purpose, and for his glory. Now, what do you find purpose and meaning life? Because he says, in this context, essentially, because he's all-sufficient in creation and everything that was made by him, for him, through him, what is our purpose on life for? Where do we find purpose and meaning in life? Some of you know that I have a chance to speak in high schools all the time on a subject that's uh, not all of you would be running to teach on. It's on depression and suicide through a foundation called the With Hope Foundation. And one of the things we find 
is that we talk to kids about where do they find purpose and meaning in life. It's a subtle way of presenting the gospel in, a, in school situations where you can't use the G word. Three letters, remember? What is it? God, very good. And the J word, which is Jesus, right? And so I talk to them about how do you find purpose and meaning in life? And where do you find those things? And I said, every answer you give me must begin with the letter F, because I'm hoping that faith makes the top five. Hopefully there's a Christian in that audience who will say faith. Sadly, oftentimes faith never makes the top 10. So I thought I'd let you give me what you think I find. There are at least 15 answers. They all begin with the letter F. Let's play the game together. Where does the world, absent Jesus Christ, find faith? And yes, audience participation, you may yell it out. Finances, what else? Raise your hand so I can see you. Finances. Finances and friends. Food, finances, friends, food. Finances, food, friends, family. Now we have a Thanksgiving gathering. Family, finances, food, friends, family. Fame. Football, and let's take all care of all the footballs. We have football for the soccer players, football, and for the total slackers, foosball. All right, we got all those. All right, so we got fame, family, fun, fame, fortune, football, football, foosball. What else do we have? We have Facebook for the totally shallow. Oh, no. Or maybe they just have lots of time. All right. What else? Fun. What? That doesn't begin with F, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know, yes. Freedom. So you see fame, friends, family, fun, fortune, food, football, football, foosball, Facebook, friends, and then there's always some kid in the audience, a guy who says, females, I'm living for the, and then some girl says, flirting. But the two best answers I ever got was a kid from Santa Paula High School, he says, I live for frijoles. And I said, right on, dude. Bring me the beans. All right, do we have one final answer? Yes, sir. Forgiveness. You see, faith, forgiveness, hardly ever make the top five. And yet, in our passage, Jesus Christ has no close second. He is the cohesion of the universe. And I love this because he's the one. He's the one who has the whole world in his hands. He is the cohesion of the universe. Before, uh, refers to God's pre-existence before creation. He's sovereign over it, not subject to it. And he says he holds it together. Literally, it's the glue that holds the universe together. I got a question for you. If he can hold the universe together, do you think by chance that he can hold your problem that seems so immense? Do you think he's got a grip on that? Do you think he understands? Do you think he understands and knows the heartache some of you are experiencing this morning? Is Jesus Christ the kind of God who understands a broken marriage? Is he the kind of God who understands the guilt some of you feel for the abortion you had years ago? For the failed marriage? For the explosive anger that causes you 
to regret things you've said? Is he the kind of God who can wash you with forgiveness for things that you don't even want to say out loud because you're so disgusted with choices you've made? Is he the kind of God who understands the predicament you're in in your job when your boss is asking you to do something as unethical, illegal, or immoral and you've got to risk your job because you want to maintain your integrity? You see, it's all fine and dandy say that God is in charge. Jesus is number one. He's preeminent until our problem trumps him. And I would suggest to us to think today that maybe Jesus is number one and most evident in the valleys of our lives, not on the mountaintops of our lives. That he is most preeminent when you acknowledge that in your failures, not just in your successes. And so, the scripture says here that he is the cohesion of the universe. He holds it all together. Thirdly, why is he number one? Because he is all sufficient in the church, verses 18 and 19. He is the head of the church in verse 18, and he is the hope of the church. He's the head of the church. It says, and he is the head of the body of the church. He's the ruling or governing authority. Now, little uh, New Testament leadership discussion here. If he is the head of the body of the church, then he uses the elders and the leaders of the church, like we introduced today, to lead the church. We're just the undercarriers. We're just the, the supporting cast. He is the head of our church. And as we pray as an elder board and as a staff, we're asking that Jesus Christ would give us direction and wisdom as we lead. You see, you can't live without a head. You can't have, uh, you know, well, you've heard that, that, that illustration, run around with a chicken with its head cut off. Kids, there's actually a, a gruesome experience that gets you to your chicken tenders, and I won't describe how it goes from chicken to chicken tenders but it does involve headless chickens. We'll just leave it at that, all right? And so, but you can't, you can't operate with your head cut off. Um, I, sorry for another one more football illustration. You, when you get your bell rung and you're not seeing clear, you, you don't have clarity. You're not fully aware of what's going on. You make bad decisions. And when our head, Jesus Christ, is knocked around, we groggily make bad decisions when we don't Listen to him. So he's also the head of the church. He's the hope of the church. He's the hope in four areas. He's the hope in predestination. It says he's the beginning. Write down Revelations 22, 13. He's the alpha and the mega. He is the beginning. For those of you who are philosophical, he is the first cause. He is the brute fact. You say, what am you talking about? Talk to Bill Heatley. Talk to Rocky Nungester. Talk to someone who wears glasses. I'm not sure. No, I, I do know. He is, he, why did I say that? I just, woo, off the reservation right there. Um, you see, I get in this discussion with my racquetball friend, Emery, who's an agnostic, and George, who is an atheist. And this idea of first cause is a problem for them. They're looking for who created God, and, the, and it, it blows their minds as we talk through these issues. He's also in power, all right? He's, he's 
the hope of the church, not only in predestination, but in power. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, it's very interesting. He is not the first to be resurrected from the dead. In fact, I was shocked. One, two, at least eight times other people have been resurrected from the dead. Now, some of you are going, ooh, what are those eight things? This is one of those little interesting discussions that would be very meaningful to like three of you. So here's my deal. I'll give you one of them. You come up with the other seven. And if you can't find the answer, wait till Monday night. It'll be on the website, all right? But the widow of Zarephath is this one of those people raised from the dead. Now, in a sense, they were resuscitated. But think about this. They weren't resurrected because what happens? They were resuscitated, but they eventually all died again. So you can look at all the rest of them on the website of the people that were raised from the dead, they were resuscitated, but only Jesus was recess, uh, re, re, uh, resurrected. Now, there is one guy who never died, and that was Enoch. And uh, Genesis 5.24 talks about his story. Elijah. And Elijah. There's a, well, see, we have some experts in the front row. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, man, I'm getting nervous already. What else am I forgetting here today? All right, let's move on. In power and in preeminence, that in everything he might be preeminent. That he might be preeminent. Now, there should be, by faith, a picture of Michael Phelps. In Olympic history, this guy is preeminent. He is no equal in Olympic swimming. What, 21 medals over his three Olympics, or four Olympics, whatever it was. So it doesn't matter, no matter what your favorite sports team is, in relationship to Jesus Christ, there's no close second. There's nothing that compares to him. He is preeminent. And then in position, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus has it all. He's everything we need. It's all, not partial, and this fullness, the pleroma, Literally means totality, abundant. Jesus represents all that God is. Now again, I've been telling you about the Gnostics. Another day I'll talk more about what they believe, but the Gnostics wanted these series of spiritual emanations to come out and these change of an, uh, chain of angelic beings were supposed to be the mediators between God and man. And he's actually saying, no, you don't need that. You got all the fullness you need in Jesus Christ. The plentitude that he called dwelled in Christ. And if you heard this, remember at his baptism, and he's pleased. God was pleased to dwell in him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Number four, he's all sufficient. He's number one in conversion. Verses 20 to 23. And you'll see that in his reconciliation of us, and you'll see it in our restoration. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. This is referring back, if you go back a few verses, to the redemption. So he reconciled us. And what does that mean? It's right there in verses 20 and 22. And you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and he's now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. Simply stated, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins to purchase you a place in heaven. And he offers the free gift of eternal life to anyone who puts his faith and trust alone in Jesus Christ. That's what that's all about. The fruit on that tree are the fruit of people who have come to faith in Christ. Now, I had the privilege on Friday night to speak to 100-plus sweaty boys and a couple of brave girls. 
from ages seven to that one dude had to be in his 60s. I don't know. Uh, he was old, all right? I mean, he had wheelchair, you know, going. No, he wasn't in a wheelchair, but there was an older dude there. And there were some big dudes. I was looking at them. I'm looking at these little eight-year-olds. I'm going, somebody's going to die. And I saw that one, uh, one big guy he's coming back with his gun over his head. It was so funny. And I said, you were out there for like seven seconds. And one of those little seven-year-olds was hiding in the bushes and just nailed him. As soon as he walked out of the door, boom! The guy was like, are you serious? And all I did was wear a little yellow vest, you know, with goggles, and I'm going, Jesus loves you! Don't shoot me! No, I didn't quite do it like that. I just tried to stay out of harm's way. But I got to speak out in that out there in that courtyard, and there's 100 kids, and they're eating pizza, and they're drinking Coke, and all of a sudden it got quiet. And I said that Jesus Christ is what you put your faith in. And trusting in Jesus Christ alone is what counts. It's putting your life into God's hands. And in another sermon, I'll illustrate what I did with them, but not today. They heard the gospel on Friday night. And that's the good news, that he's reconciled us. He's redeemed us. He took sin into his body. He absorbs the contagion. And his death on the cross purchased us as a place in heaven. And then in restoration, verses 22 and 23, the reason, in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. In restoration, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now, we have that crippled guy up there because he heals and restores broken things. Not just physically, but he restores you spiritually. That word holy means separated from evil, worthy of respect. Blameless literally means without blemish. We know that from the sacrificial lamb system in the Old Testament. Above reproach, in other words, no one can bring an accusation against you. This is implication that this is what God does to you. Now, are you always holy? Are you always blameless? Are you always above reproach? The answer is no, because that would be the doctrine of sinless perfection. We do not teach that. What we do believe is that you're moving towards Christ. And as you make a decision for Christ, as you're conformed to the image of Christ, that process of what we call sanctification goes on the rest of your life. And hopefully, you're not making the same mistakes 30 years from now that you're making now. Now, some of you say, but I have this besetting sin that just nails me. There's things that I do. Can't God just take this from me? And there are some issues that at times as Christians, we, got, we get caught, we're stuck. And what Satan would love to do is just beat you up on all the times you get stuck. And every time I mess up, I've decided instead of heaping guilt on my shoulders, it's one more opportunity for me to thank God that he forgave me, that he redeemed me, he took my life from the pit. He sets me on this, this place where in his eyes he sees me as holy and blameless and above reproach. Well, what's the requirement though? If indeed you continue in the faith. Now, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. But if you continue in your faith, a la the perseverance of the saints, what we do know is this, that there will be fruit in your life and that as you continue in that faith, You'll see the stability and the, the steadfastness, and there won't be the shifting in hope. Now, time out. I know I'm raising a question that you're going, oh, 
move, but what about someone who claims to be a Christian, but he's not persevering? He, there doesn't seem to be any faith or stability or steadfastness, and he's lost hope, and he doesn't act like a Christian. You know, we've been there. My very first message I ever preached here was on the prodigal son. You need to listen to that. Because some of you are worried about people who you thought prayed to receive Christ as a young man or woman or a young kid, and now you see no evidence of that, no fruit in their life. And it's a problematic issue. But this is what I do know, that God's grace is sufficient. Number two, Romans tells me that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I do believe that God has snatched you He's taken you. He's grabbed you from the clutches of Satan and you, if you have responded in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing, and I'm telling you, nothing can take you away from Jesus Christ. Now in the meantime, I know there's a bunch of grandmas and grandpas and moms and dads worried about kids and grandkids because they don't see that fruit. And in the end, we'll find out. But I believe that God's grace is sufficient. And so as we wrap up, we, we need to understand that when we shift from the hope of the gospel, it would be like tantamount to denying the gospel. And so no matter what you're going through, my hope and prayer for you is that you would see Jesus Christ as the ultimate solution in your life. Now I realize some of you are sitting here today, this is new news to you, you're, you're new to the faith, you're checking it out, you're, you're hearing this, but you're not exactly sure if you buy it. And I want you to understand that that's okay. This is exactly the place you need to be while you're thinking this stuff through. Because the last thing I wanna do as your pastor is to make some emotional, dramatic appeal, talk about getting hit by a car as you leave the parking lot, and that you make some dramatic decision that has no connection to reality. If your faith is real, it will make sense to you. Doesn't mean you'll understand everything, it'll make sense to you. And then the Holy Spirit will begin to change you from the inside out. Some of you say, but don't I have to kind of give up this and give up that and then I'm, I'm kind of clean enough or good enough to respond to God? Uh-uh. He takes you right where you are. But some of you go, you don't have any idea about how bad I am or what my life used to be like. You know what? I don't need any example from your life. I can look at my life. I'm not perfect. In fact, I am so far from perfect, I am blessed to have a wife of 34 years who doesn't remind me of how imperfect I am. She is so gracious. <laughs> but I can tell you this, on January 6th, 1963, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was almost seven years old, I was six years old, I was in first grade. 
And my first grade teacher, who at West Covina Christian School at the time, I thought she had to be 6'6", 240. <laughs> I'm sure she was like 5'4", a buck 20. But, you know, the bottom line is she seemed just intimidating and powerful. And I do not recommend this. Our children's ministry does not do this. She preached her version of sinners in the hands of an angry God. <laughs> I kid you not. There are 24 first graders in rapt attention, their knees shaking as she describes burning in hell. And when she said, do you want to be rescued from hell by Jesus, 24 hands went up. I mean, 24 hands went up. For two reasons. I didn't want to go to hell, and I thought she might be there. So, she was just one of those kind of teachers, all right? No disrespect to any teacher out there. And I trusted Christ with my life. But the best thing that she did for me on an old IBM Selectric typewriter, she typed these words, I, John Lee Irwin, accepted Jesus as my savior. Now I know that I love him and he loves me. And I just, chicken scratched my signature on this old three by five card. And it's somewhere in a hope chest, look, I think with a wedding dress actually and other trinkets that we save. That's when Jesus came into my life. This is the Jesus that I tell you of. This is the Jesus that I'm passionate about. This is the Jesus who redeems my life from the pit. This is the firstborn of creation. This is the preeminent King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's who I'm asking you today to do business with. And when we go into communion, you'll have a chance to reflect on your relationship with God. And we invite anybody who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior to participate with us. If you're not yet at that point of decision, there is no embarrassment to just pass that tray and don't take the communion until you're ready to take the communion. And so in summary, our response to God goes like this. Christ is the image of God, so let's reflect him. If he's the image of God, let's reflect him. If he's before all things, let's respect him. If he's holding all things together, let's trust him. If he's the head of all things, let's honor him. And if he's the beginning of all things, let's follow him. And if he's reconciling all things, let's thank him. So as I pray and the music begins, I want you to reflect on where you're at. And you see right here in your notes, there's some choices here. Everybody makes a, gets to check a box today. Where are you today in these notes? And then... For follow-up, students, you'll be discussing these questions. Families, take these in your quiet time. But where's your life today? Are you on your own? You say, I don't need God. Are you in turmoil? You say, I need God. Are you saying, I'm without God? I want to trust Him with my life. My life's boring. I need a challenge. Or maybe you're saying, I'm God-centered today. I have a purpose. Jesus Christ is the Lord. You check one of those boxes. And if you check that third one without God, I want to trust him with my life, would you come and talk to me? Would you talk to one of our elders? Would you talk to someone and say, hey, how do I do that? What does that mean? We'd like to explain it to you. We don't want you to just check a box. We want to personally pray with you so that 
that you could know the Jesus that I speak of. And so I'm going to pray. And right out of this prayer, we're going right into communion as we sing together. If during the course of communion you just want to be prayed for, I'm going to have the elders just stand along the sides of the church. Not up front, just stand along the sides of the church. Elders, go ahead and stand up. And if you need to be prayed for, just pray with someone, then come and take communion. If you want to pray with me, I'm going to be way over here in the corner. If you're uncomfortable praying with a man, ladies, come and pray with my wife who will stand with me if you want to be prayed by her, with her. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask today that your message would be clear, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He, we celebrate it today. We take communion today. And in the taking of this communion, the bread and the cup represent your body and blood which were shed for us. And ultimately today, Lord, if there's anybody in this room who's never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, Lord, may they pray this prayer with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, I need a Savior. I know I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Come into my life and wash away the pain, the sin, and the, ultimately the separation from you. And Lord, I accept your free gift of eternal life. Wash me with your forgiveness and help me to become the man or woman that you've created me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are now a part of God's family. If it's been something you've been thinking about for a long time and today you made that decision for the first time, Please, please, tell someone about it. Tell me about it. In the power of Christ, I stand. We don't do it on our own. And the best thing about being a part of the body is we get to do life together. Amen? Don't ever take what you have here for granted. You are the body of Christ. And you are the visible representation of all that we've talked about today. So would you stand with me? And because we've been praying for the, the unity of our church, we've been praying for our leaders, I'd like you to go across the aisles and uh, actually hold the hand of the person next to you. You say, but it's sweaty, it's all right. We can deal with that. And as we are unified together, let me share this benediction. And as I do without any further ado, when we're done, High school and junior high, I'll exit stage right. You'll come forward. We'll take just a very brief break, and then we're going to get started with our annual meeting. Let's worship in this closing benediction. And now, unto him who is able to keep you from falling, who has redeemed your life from the pit, who has reconciled all things to him, and by him and through him, who is the firstborn of all creation, who is made in the image of the invisible God, to that God, to that Jesus, be all power and glory and dominion and majesty, now and in Christ alone forevermore. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.